Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hey, hey, thanks for tuning in again to the podcast. My name is Ian Foster. I'm recording this in mid-November in advance because at the moment that this is being released, we are on a red-eye flight to Ontario to start our Christmas tour, Nancy and I. We're going to be playing venues all across southern Ontario, in Fredericton, and also back home here in Newfoundland. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you have heard me hyping this tour now for a little while, and now it's on. We hope you come to the shows. You can find out all the details at ianfoster.ca, and... This is a special one for us, a unique one for us. We did our first Christmas tour last year with the record A Week in December. And so this is a follow-up, a bigger tour, a more ambitious tour. It's all still an experiment, but we're giving it a go. We're having, having a time with it. So I hope that you'll come join us to celebrate the holiday season this year. Okay, what else is new? Well... Um, David Chafe's record still is now out in the world. I had the pleasure of engineering this record and capturing the beast that is the grand piano at Wesley United Church. We used some very, very fancy microphones and some fancy microphone techniques, and I think we captured the spirit of the instrument and David's playing of it for a series of classical instrumental piano pieces. So I would love for you to look this up. You can find it at Fred's Records. You can also find it online. So it's David Chafe Still is the name of that record. So congrats to David on that release. Other than that, well, I mean, that's a fair bit of stuff. The podcast is ticking along towards its season finale, which is going to be the um, third and second last Thursdays of December. We're going to take the very last Thursday of the year off. I think it's Boxing Day or something like that. Um, but it's it's a doozy. It's the live episode from the rooms that we recorded with special guest Mary Walsh. So you're listening today to the Kelly Russell episode for the next two weeks. And then right after that is the two-parter conversation I had with the excellent Mary Walsh at The Rooms. And that's going to clue up season one of If and When. It's been a cool uh, nine months or so, I guess, is, is probably about how long I've been doing this podcast now. It's evolved so much. There's been some really cool opportunities that have come out of it, some conversations I've really valued. I hope you have valued them as well. If you've been a regular listener, thank you. If you're new to it, I'd love for you to go back and check out the archives. The beautiful thing about podcasts is that it is just that feed, you know, it's, it's not hard to find. They're all in the same, in the same place. And so when you discover a new one, maybe this is a new discovery for you. They're all right there just waiting for you to, to download and listen while you uh, go around the house or uh, do whatever it is you do when you listen to podcasts. I listen to them a lot around the house and a little bit in the car. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'm going to say that a few times between now and the end of season one, and then we'll take a short hiatus and be back in a few months with season two once I recoup the old bank of interesting conversations with cool people. My guest today on the podcast, Kelly Russell. Kelly is a staple of the Newfoundland music scene, and he's been in seminal bands like Figgy Duff, and we have a really great conversation about his history with that band, his history with Kelly Russell and the Planks, other groups he's played in, most recently the No Change in the Weather musical that he just came back on tour from, and it's a very honest conversation that gets into the nuts and bolts of what it is to be a independent musician, a, a, a musician for hire, a session musician, and we talk about all that stuff. It was a really fun conversation as well, and I'm sure you'll you'll hear that in our voices as we talk. So without further ado, part one of my conversation with musician Kelly Russell. Hey, Kelly. Hey Ian, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Number one, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Uh, my pleasure. So, we'll start at the very beginning. Tell me where you're from. From right here, St. John's, Newfoundland. Oh yeah, downtown yeah. or? Uh, no, I grew up um, around the Churchill Square area hmm. on Stony House Street. It was a, kind of a new development back in those days. I was born in the 50s. Right. 
and uh, and that was uh, that was a new part of town back then. Right. Yeah. Was that out towards the edge at that point in time? Yes. Or, yeah. yeah fair, fairly much so. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, and I, I I grew up and went to school at uh, Brinton Memorial up there on Strawberry Marsh Road. Nice. Until grade six, and then went to Booth, which I drove by the other day and heartbreaking to see it torn down. I feel so I went to Bishops. Did you? And same thing. Yeah. And like we've got some really some some of our best friends now live like just, you know, Bishops is their backyard essentially yeah. on Pennywell Road there. Yeah. And so I regularly see the progress of that development, which yeah. I think is an old folks home is what they're converting. I do believe so, yes. Right. Yeah, and yeah. I just looked at them and I'm like, man, imagine if I if I stay here the rest of my life, talk about a close by return. What if I ended up in my <laughs> yeah. old high school as a retirement as a home? Retired. <laughs> oh man, I don't, I don't know if I'd, uh, I don't know if I'd be into that. Right? <laughs> I'm just like that. I mean, Bishops was fine. It just wasn't the best year. I don't need to go back and relive those no, years. No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Nostalgia's all right to a point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you know what they're doing with Booth? Like, uh, I don't know. I uh, don't know. Yeah. This prime piece of land, though, I imagine something I know. significant will go there. I know. Yeah. Indeed. But anyway, yeah, that's, um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm a townie. Um, and uh, I've, I've spent a, a lot of my life trying to live outside of town. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a wannabe bayman, really. <laughs> um, What's the attraction for you as a townie? The, uh, what the attraction to? I guess it's the classic be, urban rural thing, right? Like, is it is the is it you would like to be in a more rural area? As uh, I, I I think that I've always been searching for Pigeon Inlet, my dad's fictitious uh, outport. You know, because his story is such an influence on me, um, and just the the whole appreciation and love of Newfoundland culture and the old way of life. Uh, my father wrote those stories because he saw that way of life disappearing. Right. And, uh, you know, he was part of that. Uh, he was in government early on with Smallwood and, uh, you know, uh, Smallwood's industrialization uh, plans and burn your boats and all this. And my father was against that. He uh, strongly felt that uh, the fishery was our, was Newfoundland's prime resource. Right. And that it should be uh, it should be cared for and, and nurtured, not uh, cast aside. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I think I always uh, wanted to, you know, have a boat and... You know, live that outport way of life. Totally. Which, which I did to some extent. Uh, uh, lived in Trinity for, uh, well, year round. We lived there five years. Right. Until uh, lack of employment <laughs> forced right. us out of there. Right. But uh, that's the problem, of course, with rural Newfoundland. Nice place to live, but you can't make a living in, in these places. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's been transformed over the last 30 years, for sure, yeah, since, since the moratorium, definitely. you know. Do you think it's, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, this is an immediate tangent, but, like, do you think that there is some rebirth happening there now when it comes to tourism? Uh, I mean, There is in certain places. Like, you look at Trinity or Bonavista, Twillingate, um, you know, certain places are, uh, are enjoying... Um, you know, I, I guess you could say a, re, a resurgence, or uh, but it's not the same, right? You know, it's like like you say, it's tourism based, right? Which is two months of the year, really. I yeah, mean. so it's very seasonal. Well, that's that was our problem in Trinity. I mean, we, uh, uh, you know, I, I I had lots of things to do in the summertime as a as a performer and a musician. Yeah. Uh, but what do you do the rest of the year? Right. <laughs> you know, these places empty out uh, over the winter, and uh, right, and then know. you're commuting. Yeah. To do any work. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. And you lived on Belle Island briefly? Yes. Well, that we went to Belle Island after Trinity. Um, my wife, Tanya, is a school teacher. Right. Uh, so we went there. Uh, we're one of the few people who can say we moved to Belle Island to find work. <laughs> <laughs> There's not many people who will say that. Uh, and um, it was more than a short time, man. We lived there 11 years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. 11 years on Belle Island. Right. Yeah. Right, and now the last two years we're we're back in St. John's, and I'm, I'm home. I, right, yeah. I remember, um, you know, we've been uh, friends on Facebook during, um, I guess, probably about at least half the time that you were on Bell Island, because uh, you were doing stuff with Bell Island Radio and that sort of thing. Yes, yeah. Well, I uh, I helped create the uh, community radio station over there. Right. In, in fact, in, in 
all modesty, I, I, I was the main force behind behind making that happen. Right. And it was one of these things that you, you don't get your license from the CRTC unless you are a, a, a not-for-profit incorporated entity, which means that you have a board of directors and elections every year, uh, which leaves the thing vulnerable to uh, take over right. by, by other people. And... Uh, I always say that Radio Bell Island was one of my greatest achievements and and one of my greatest regrets as mm. well. I do remember seeing Facebook stuff from that period of time and yeah. hearing some stories. Yeah. And I mean, we can get into them or not here today. It doesn't yeah. make a giant giant difference. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'd prefer not to. Let's suffice to say that uh, we started a successful radio bingo, which was um, producing major income right. for for the three partners of the radio station, which were the high school the tourism group over there and the radio station itself. Right. And then the people in the tourism group started to to see, you know, that they could take this over and control mm. the whole thing, which they did. Right. But anyway, they eventually uh, made a complete balls of it and uh, lost their, their lottery license. And now it's, you know, it's practically nothing now. It's a... Damn. Yeah. But anyway, there you go. Yeah. Greed, greed and... Uh, and uh, a desire for control and power often corrupts things. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Very true. So you moved back to St. John's? Back to St. John's, and now I'm living downtown right. uh, on Gower Street. And man, um, you know, my rehearsals and my gigs and my teaching, everything is within a five-minute radius of where I live. Right. It's fantastic. Yeah, It's so good. Yeah. I don't go on the road anymore. I go across the road. <laughs> <laughs> Like I have a weekly gig at Aaron's Pub where I host the slow session, you know, right. five minute walk. Yeah. Uh, when we're doing no change in the weather, the rehearsals, five minute walk. Totally. My gig at the Crow's Nest in the summer, less than a five minute walk. Yeah. Oh, it's that's great. A great. I mean, it's you're great. you're on our little walking path down here because yeah. we live downtown as well. And uh, I mean, you've got a great spot there. Yeah. Yeah. I almost feel like it's. My little reward for <laughs> for having <laughs> for the uh, the eleven years for or, the eleven years on hell uh, excuse me Bell Island. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we'll go back a little bit here now. So, I mean, when when did music begin for you? Like, oh my goodness, Ian! Um, from childhood, right? Uh, my mother uh, played the piano, okay, and the organ, and she had records, and she listened to opera and classical music mm -hmm. uh, for the most part. Uh, so I grew up on, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein and, uh, you know, uh, and she would take me to the Arts and Culture Center whenever uh, operas and, and musicals would come. Um, she started to teach me piano at the age of eight. Uh, that teacher-student relationship lasted about a year and she finally realized that... Uh, Can't teach your kids. No, so uh, I was shipped off to a proper music teacher, uh, uh, Professor Reese actually was uh, was uh, my music teacher. He uh, had his piano studio right there on the corner of Pine Butt Avenue and Rowan Street, as you go into Churchill Square there. Oh, yeah. And I lived, of course, just uh, just down the road from there on Stony House Street. Um, uh, so it was mostly classical music I was learning on the piano. Although Professor Reese did allow me to play some pop songs, so I had a book of Beatles songs, and I used to. Uh, you know, learned I uh, learned to play "Let It Be" and you know, right. some of these other more uh, piano-friendly songs. Yeah. Um, so uh, piano was it for me from age eight to about fourteen, um, when uh, I started to grow my hair long and got interested in the guitar. Right. So I quit piano. I I, I wish I hadn't actually. My mom advised me not to, mm -hmm. um, because I, I was I was pretty good at it. You know, I used to go in the Qantas Music Festival. Every year, and I'd come out with a with a first or a second uh, award. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I, I don't. I'm not really a fan of uh, awards for for music, and you know, there shouldn't be a first and second prize for right. for any performer, in, in my in my view. Yep. Anyway, I'm uh, with you. I, I I like to celebrate the the differences we have in music, and to uh, to uh, suggest that there's a right way. To play music, and this one is better than the other. Yeah, how do you compare? I don't know. It's like how do you compare Rufus Ginchard and Emil Benoit, the two totally different styles of fiddler? Right. Uh, which one is better? Right. Well, goodness, neither one of them are better. Right. The one is. They're, they're both very different. It also creates this. Um, 
this artificial elitism of like that there is someone who can decide that. Yes, like exactly. that you could yeah. say that, but it's like, well, you're saying that, but but the yeah. judges know. Yeah, like and, who are and the who judges? Are they, and who are they to? Yeah. You know, it's it's yeah. that's just their opinion or their taste. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, you know, the best Kiwanis adjudicators I ever had clearly recognized that. Even looking back, and I was just a teenager at the time, yeah. and it was years ago, but I can remember you could sense the best ones. Yeah, were like. Okay, we got to do this job, but like you could sense by the way that they were talking about it, yeah. that they were like, this is not just simply uh, this yeah, person's I've, bad. I, I've person. been asked to judge musical competitions. I always turn it down. Yeah, say, I can't do it. Yeah, but uh, the uh, you speak of the adjudicators, the the, uh, uh, the recognition I used to get, and I remember in the comments, you know, the adjudicator would get up and 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 speak about your performance, and it was always something to do with. Um, the uh, feeling and the passion that mm. I that I somehow put into the piece of music, so that it wasn't just being played mechanically. That there was there was something else there. Yeah. That. Uh, but anyway, Mom uh, was very disappointed that I quit piano. But uh, I, I was growing my hair long, and I was uh, determined to be a guitarist. Right. And I was going to play in a band. I, I was very passionate about music. Loved it. Uh, even then, we were talking about Booth. Um, when I went to Booth Memorial High School, uh, Dr. Eric Abbott was the music teacher uh, there at the time. So I was in band and I was in the glee club and I learned to play the trumpet or the cornet, actually, the uh, version of the trumpet. Right. Um, and I did pretty good at that as well. Uh, so any any kind of musical uh, activity at all. I, I did actually sing and play the guitar when I was a teenager. I, I had an acoustic guitar and I, I was somehow drawn to the to the to the folk songs even back then right you know I, I had a little book of canadian folk songs and uh, you know the the springfield the spring hill mine disaster and these <laughs> you know this, I, was, I was drawn to that any uh, idea why like so I, I your mom know. was a classical it, yeah it was interested in that what was it, that it was, I, I think it was the stories that were in the songs right, it was right. just something about it something uh, immediate something that it was uh to do with people and and yep. and and things that happened and I don't know I was just always fascinated by that what was your and, dad interested in uh, dad wasn't musical at all he, okay. he used to joke that uh, uh, when he was in uh, Glee Club when he went to school that he was asked to uh, stand in the back row and uh, <laughs> move his mouth and make it look like he was singing right gotcha gotcha <laughs> so he he wasn't musical at all but I think uh, m my father's influence is pretty uh, is pretty pretty big uh, on me. Um, his his stories and the the whole uh, uh, celebration of the old Newfoundland way of life. Yeah, the pigeon inlet stories. That was uh, yeah. His he had a, a great love for uh, for for Newfoundland and the Newfoundland people. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it sounds like that all fits together in an interesting puzzle. Like your yes. interest in folk music yeah. and then yeah. your dad's, you know, interest in those stories. Yeah. That it would all come together. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Between mom and dad, there's sort of the, the music and the, and, the, and the Newfoundland cultural thing there. And I just, I just, I guess, absorbed both of it. And uh, Although at the age of 14, uh, when I... Uh, I worked a summer job when I was 15, actually, at Bannerman Park, oh, yeah. the swimming pool. Right. Uh, I worked there the whole summer as a basket boy. It was my first job. Okay. Um, checking in baskets of dirty clothes and, <laughs> and cleaning the uh, the washrooms. Right, right. Um, but it was my first job, and I loved it, and I made enough money to go down to the music center on Water Street, where uh, Lou Skinner had his music store down there, mm -hmm. and um, bought my first electric guitar. I had a... a, a a Fender Telecaster mm. that I bought secondhand, mm. and uh, I don't have it anymore. I wish I did. Right, but I was determined I was going to be a guitar player. Right, and uh, yeah, I was going to play in a band. We had a neighborhood band. Um, a friend of mine who lived just across the road, uh, Dave Day, played drums, and then we had another guy who, who, who did some singing. And uh, so at age fourteen, I had a guitar strapped on me, and we were, you know, I was determined to. Know, to get out and play, perform. Right. Yeah. And were you playing rock and roll, or were uh, we were doing Credence, Clearwater Revival, yeah. and the Stones, and some Beatles songs, and you know whatever was Venus and whatever was <laughs> on the radio at the time. You know, and how long did that last? Um, oh, fourteen, fifteen. Till I was probably about sixteen or so, sixteen, cool. seventeen. Right. Um, 
when I was about 17 years old, I first heard, uh, I got in with a, a, a different group of people. I, I kind of um, moved out of the neighborhood and started hanging around up at the, uh, at the university. Mm -hmm. uh, the Spanish calf was a, was a popular spot back then. Okay. And uh, we, we, we won't go into stories about the Spanish calf. We'll Why not? All day. Let's do it. <laughs> but uh, I, I got in with a, a, a crowd of people up there, a crowd of friends. I made some new friends. They were all a year or two older than me. Um, but I was, I, I was accepted into the fold. And uh, they were listening to music that I'd never heard before. And some of this music was being played over Mon Radio as well. And it's when I first heard uh, Fairport Convention mm. and Steel Eye Span. Uh, for those who don't know, the, um, they're, uh, they were the pioneers of, uh, of folk rock. Mm -hmm. um, Fairport was the first band to amplify um, a fiddle. Right. And, uh, and the first band to uh, pl play fiddle tunes with electric guitar and bass and drums accompaniment. And they did old folk songs, too. Right. So kind of kind of in the style of what Figgy Duff did here in Newfoundland a few years later. Totally. Uh, Fairport Convention and Steel Ice Band were doing with English folk music. Right. And, and some Irish music as well. Um, and I don't know, it was something about as soon as I heard uh, Fairport, I was like, oh, my God. Right. <laughs> and I put down the guitar and I picked up a mandolin. Um, uh, one, of, one of my friends from, from those days, Bob Hong, and, and, and a bunch of them got together and bought me a, an electric mandolin for Christmas. Um, and I started to learn to play that. I, I never looked back on the guitar after that. I still know a few chords. But, right, uh, right. But I taught myself the mandolin, and from that I taught myself the fiddle. Right. And, well, that's, that's, that, was, uh, that was the beginning of it right there. That would have been around about 1975. Right. And it seems now that you're best known for your fiddle. Yes. But you play, you know... You play a number of instruments. I you have a Wikipedia article. Maybe you know this. Maybe you don't. But I was reading your Wikipedia article, and it does lists the number of instruments that you play. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I hope it doesn't say that I play them well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I dabble like, like my music room at home. Yeah, you know, I have a lot of different instruments. Right. Uh, bazooki, mandolin. I have a Appalachian dulcimer. Yeah. I have a Chinese guicheng. Right. I have a little small Celtic harp. Right. Um. And uh, and a few other little odds and ends of instruments, but uh, I'm not really proficient at them. But I I, I like to uh, I like to play with them, shall we say? Right, right, yes. yeah. So with the fiddle, the fiddle is the instrument you. But yes, yes. Considered yeah. the like the main form of your expression. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Why that one now? Like, how did it become the main one for you? Well, I, I think the Fairport influence, uh, you know, because they were they were very strong with and Steel Ice Band too. Both those bands had a had a fiddler mm -hmm. uh, with the with the rock band accompaniment. And for me, this was ideal. I wanted to play in a rock band, right? But I was a terrible guitarist. <laughs> and there were so many other great guitarists around Bruce Crummel and you know like the Sandy and all the you know you know there was no way that the, the competition was was fierce, right? Uh, amongst guitar players, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It, uh, but fiddlers, there was nobody else playing. In 1975, Ian, there was no person my age playing a fiddle. Isn't that interesting? No, an accordion was unheard of. Wow, really? Yeah, that, that was the music of the older generation. We were still, you know, in that era of you know coming up through the 50s and the 60s, where where that music was uh, was the music of the older generation. Right. And uh, and we, uh, you know, teenagers in the 70s. Uh, there was so much else. I mean, rock music was, was, was really coming into its own, and and, uh, and you know that just had a huge influence um, on everybody. Right. Uh, but you know, I I, I guess the the little uh, foot in the door there for me was 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 hearing Fairport and Steel Ice Band and 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 realizing, hey, you know, I could be one of the only people around. Playing a fiddle, right? In it, and and you know, and try I to could, make it cool. I could, I could get myself on stage that way, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. And because I was I was desperate to, I was determined to to play music, right? I I, I even schemed, <laughs> um, I I intentionally uh, failed my grade eleven math so that I could forestall having to go to university or trade school because I desperately needed needed to buy myself a little bit of extra time to get proficient 
mm. on, on a musical instrument, which right. turned out to be the fiddle. And I, I, I stalled my, because my dad was insisting that, you know, you, you go to university, you go to trade school. You, music is a great hobby, dad used to say, but you'll never make a living at it. Right. Sometimes I think he was right. <laughs> but I've persevered. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. Did you ever go to university after? Um, no. No. I uh, I spent a lot of time there. Yeah. Uh, as uh, as um, Greg Toomey said in one of his characters on This Hour is 22 Minutes years ago. I don't know if you remember the character uh, uh, Jerry... Uh, was it Jerry Byrne or... Uh, uh, character he had on the show anyway who used to say uh, well I didn't actually go to Mon I, I went up around Mon <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so that was me <laughs> gotcha yeah. gotcha that's cool did you were you like this was period this was mid 70s we're still talking yeah. about here yeah so like what were you working like just odd jobs at this point to try to supplement had, music yes. gigging yeah or? I had a part time job I worked in the mail room at Confederation Building for oh, a period yeah. of time I had a summer job with the Department of Forestry, okay. uh, working in their uh, supply room. Um, but they were they were just they were uh, they were full time jobs, but not for a long period of time. You know, like right. a couple of months. And 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 the the, the mail room job, um, I, I remember feeling like, uh, oh man, like I really got to practice my fiddle a lot because I got to get out of here. Right, <laughs> right. This, this this can't be my future. You know? Listen, that motivation is key. Like I, know, It is, yeah. I did I did English and history at Munn, and then I did what, because I was going to go into journalism. And, it, and similarly, I had been fed that sort of narrative of like, you know, music, what a hard living. Yeah. And, and it's totally true. Like, you know, it is a hard living. Uh, but I was going to go into journalism and, and just sort of took a long, hard look and was like, you know, that's a hard, every every living is hard to to a point. You know what I mean? Like I have yeah. journalist friends who who struggle, and the sure, and yeah. the annual take home when you start in journalism is you know I wouldn't want to be a journalist in 2019. Just like with musicians, people talk about well, streaming has has killed musicians' lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at newspapers. Yeah. Look at the yeah. way terrestrial radio works now. Like yeah. all everyone has had to reckon with the digital age. So like I don't think anyone has an easy you know easy path of it. But for me, I. I was just like, okay, I'm going to go do music. And the, the first thing I did with my English degree, what else would you do? Go work at Chapters for minimum wage, yeah, you know? Yeah. And so I worked there for a couple of years. And I just, I still remember looking at like a Starbucks and going, I'd love to get like a Frappuccino. It's it's the exact same amount of money as one hour sh of my shift. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, it was yeah. such a stark yeah. math yeah. that I was just like, okay. So like, but it, it teaches you like, as soon as you go out and do a gig, even if you're making like a hundred bucks, you're like, wow, that was a lot more fun than working at Chapters yeah. for a whole day yeah. or whatever, even though 100 bucks is still when you factor in all the practice and the yeah. sound checks and the, yes. it's still a full day. Well, I tell you, you speak, you speak of practice. Uh, I was, um, when I was first, the first couple of years learning fiddle, uh, I used to spend four or five hours a day at it. Right. And it wasn't a forced thing. I was just like, the boys would come by the house, hey, you going out? And, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I got... Uh, I got I got to do this right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I used to. I had a little room down the basement of my parents' house, uh, and I I just I sequestered myself down there, and I I was just passionate about it. I was uh, all these all these fiddle tunes that you know had all these intriguing names and uh, you know beautiful melodies, each one of them, and I was just fascinated by it. That's cool. It was a, it was a it was a fantasy world almost for me. The whole world of of traditional music and. The tunes and the songs. I loved all the songs, you know. And I was, I was listening to, you know, Martin Carthy records, and uh, you know, just uh, uh, wonderful, wonderful stuff that was coming uh, mostly out of England. But uh, 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 when Planxty started up, then the Irish music, of course, you know, I was uh, uh, very influenced by that as well. Right. But now, just, were uh, your friends were they weirded out by this? Because you're saying you were the only <laughs> fiddle player doing that. Of like, were they all like, I can't believe this guy my age is this into the no, old because, person no, music the, as you phrased it. The you know? the, the, the guys that were ha that uh, the people that I was hanging out with then at the time when I was about sixteen, seventeen, were listening to this kind of music. They introduced me to it. Oh, okay. Cool. So in fact, they were encouraging it. And, right. Uh, so your circle yeah. was into it. Yeah. 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 Cool.
but but still, when the, when when those same people would say, "Hey, you know, we're going such and such a place. Are you coming?" I'd be like, <laughs> after, after I after I delve into this uh, music for another few hours, I might be out. Oh, that's cool. So <laughs> yeah. when when did, Figgy Duff was obviously uh, imminent at this point because you were yeah. saying that this yeah. was after Fairport and you'd yeah. gotten into that music. Yeah. Well, well, my first real band was was before Figgy Duff, and there's not many people remember this band because we didn't play that often. Um, uh, but it was called Rakish Paddy. Okay. And um, the lead singer in Rakish Patty was none other than Tommy Sexton. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Tommy was about 16 years old in that time. Tommy was into everything. Like, Tommy, <laughs> dance, sing, act, whatever. Right. Like, he was just, like, all over it. <laughs> At Fairport Convention? Sure. Like, yeah. What are the lyrics? <laughs> Wigan. Yeah. Uh, so, so we were doing um, Rakish Patty. We were basically doing covers of uh, Fairport and Steel Eye Span and, and other, uh, you know, music of that ilk. Right. Um, it was, uh, it didn't last long um, because we, we, a couple of gigs we did, we played uh, at the ship before it was called the ship. Hmm. Uh, uh, it was called Dirty Dicks. Okay. Back in those days. And, and the entrance was on down the other alley. Right. Uh, and uh, oh, on the side there, yeah, like where the back door is. Yes, now. yeah, yeah. yeah. That, was, uh. that was the entrance to Dirty Dicks, right? Uh, it became the ship, I guess, in 77, maybe, or um, but in 75, uh, Rakish Patty played, mm. played Dirty Dicks. Mm-hmm. I still have the poster, right? Um, a little hand done poster that we had. <laughs> um, and I remember uh, Philip Din um, coming up to me mm. uh, and saying, uh, you know, uh, you're pretty good at that fiddle there. He said, uh, you should come and join a real band. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, uh, myself and my brother were uh, starting up this uh, band. We're calling it Figgy Duff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you should come over to the house and uh, and jam, which I did. And then Dave Panting was, uh, was recruited around about the same time. Dave was playing in a band called Ichabod Crane. With uh, Bob Davis, uh, mm-hmm. who runs, who's the manager of Long and McQuaid Music, mm-hmm. was the drummer in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil Escott was a guitar player. Dave was the bass player. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so Dave, you know, we were both around the same age, around about 16, 17 years old. Hmm. And that was the beginnings of Figgy Duff. Right. Right there. Right. Yeah. Well, sorry for the cat. Uh, <laughs> she's out there talking. Um, yeah, so tell me about that a little bit. I mean, Pamela's been here, um, and then there's been some other um, contemporaries like Sandy, and I find the Figgy Duff story to be to be fascinating because I guess, like you said, in the vein of New, uh, uh, Fairport Convention, it, it, you know, it's it's that sort of um, you know modernizing of old folk songs and yeah. rock and roll, yeah. um, and I'm sure that that was both revolutionary and cool and also had resistance like oh, my absolutely. understanding is like especially absolutely. like around yeah. the bay yeah that that was a challenge totally well you know to use a well-worn expression figgy duff were ahead of their time mm. um, and even though we were playing newfoundland music we certainly weren't playing the kind of newfoundland music that newfoundlanders wanted to hear right uh and most particularly uh out around rural newfoundland uh, anywhere outside of st john's figgy duff was not, you know, no, nobody wanted to hear that kind of, right. We had a cult following in town. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of the difficulty early on was the, the, the people who were super into folk music uh, were purists mm-hmm. who who felt that uh, electric guitar and drums and bass had absolutely no place in, uh, in, in folk music. Right. That it must remain pure, you know. Yeah, totally. It was always songs were always sung unaccompanied, so yeah, that's the way that they should continue to be sung. Yeah, Emil Benoit had a great uh, comment about that. He was asked in a radio interview what he thought of uh, all these modern instruments on the uh, being imposed, shall we say, on yeah. the on the traditional music. And his answer, I'll never forget it, and I've told this story many times. His response was, uh, "Boy," he said. If we had all that years ago, what a time we would have had. <laughs> I love it. Which speaks to the essence of, the, you know, 
songs were unaccompanied yeah. because they didn't have instruments to accompany them with. You know, it blow- and, and supposing if they'd had a guitar, do you suppose they would have said, oh, well, we can't use that. I know, I know. <laughs> they, they would have used it. Do you know, it's always blown my mind because I've toured in parts of the United States where um, there's a real conservatism still. Like if you yeah. have drums on your record, yeah. there are folk DJs now in 2019 mm-hmm. who don't want to hear it, yeah. which to me is extra insane because yeah. I mean, how many, like how many decades now are we into know, drums right? on folk songs? Yeah, like yeah. you would think that yeah. that conservatism would die yeah. out. And it does seem like for a genre where like from a like social justice standpoint is usually a very liberal genre yeah, yeah. that it can be so musically conservative sometimes. I know, uh, yeah. So, you know, I guess people like that are still listening to only the first four or five Dylan albums. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, because after that. Yeah. Right. And yet all those watershed bands, I mean, like oftentimes I'll see someone go, but look at the Beatles. And it's similar story that it would be a similar thing to what Emil said, right? It's like yeah. the Beatles would be like the Beatles were trying to get to the sounds that we now have yep. easy access to. Yes. And if the Beatles were happening now, they yep. would probably be like Daft Punk or something. They'd be yes. like some sort of cutting edge yep. musical band now using well, the sounds the, they I have. mean, uh, God forbid if they'd had the attitude that, well, a rock and roll band can only have uh, an electric guitar, bass guitar, and, and drums, that's it. You can't use a sitar. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or synthesizers. I can't yeah. even imagine what the Beatles would do with, like, full-fledged synthesizers. Yeah. Can you imagine yeah. what that music would sound like? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, so, yeah, so back to Figgy Duff. So there, you felt that you felt that pushback at yes. the time. Um, yeah, very much so. So so there was really, there, there really wasn't a market for a band like Figgy Duff at the time. Mm. Now, today, you know, it, it would be huge. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, but back then, uh, the market uh, on the mainland was uh, you know was was better. Although we still struggled, uh, I just spent two weeks in Toronto with the No Change in the Weather tour, mm-hmm. and we visited some sure. of the old haunts. You know, because we used to play uh, uh, the New Windsor House, which is McVeigh's Tavern there, and and the Horseshoe, right? And and these places. And we we lived in Toronto. We we rented a house and we lived up there, and we we're poor. Mm-hmm. We had no money, mm-hmm. you know, just struggling, trying to scrounge up gigs. Right. And gradually, uh, well, we eventually got a good review in the Toronto Star, and that sort of really helped. And we started right. getting bookings, you know, based on the, uh, uh, based on that good review we had. It's amazing uh, how one thing like that. Oh yeah, can oh, make yeah. a yeah. yeah, yeah, make a difference. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of musicians uh, who have experienced success can can point to a, a pivotal yeah a pivotal time when it was like yeah that. That's when, you know, yeah, we moved there up was to the a next shift. level. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, no, it was a very difficult. Uh, uh, Figgy Duff, we toured Newfoundland and, uh, you know, I remember we played Fogo Island. Uh, we had a three-night booking at the Fogo Island Motel. And after the first night, um, and actually during that night, I remember a fellow coming up from the audience coming up to me and telling me that if I played one more piece of music on that gd fiddle he'd shove it <laughs> uh, fortunately and you know, i had the mandolin with me so <laughs> i quickly switched over <laughs> but we uh the, the fogo island motel actually fired us after the first night oh my god uh, so there we were on fogo island so uh, what we did this was noel's idea yeah. uh, we went down to joe bat's arm right and we rented out the local hall yeah. And Joe Bat's arm and quickly got the word spread around that uh, yeah. that there was going to be a time at the high And we had fabulous, uh, fabulous night. Uh, oh, wow. In, in Joe Bat's arm. It was the motel was, you know, country music is re- was really big, uh, yeah. you know, in rural Newfoundland. Right. And we weren't doing country music. Uh, right. You know, and the kind of Newfoundland music we were doing, you know, wasn't, uh, you know, the Cliffs of Bacaloo and Eyes the Bye and... You know, we were we were doing like old folk songs that we dug out of a out of a book, several hundred years old songs that nobody had ever heard before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, for years I've been an advocate of like alternative venues and this sort of thing for what I do. And the story you just told just speaks to how 
hilariously anecdotally experience can be. And so yeah. you just told a story of like Fogo Island. And of course, you know, there's, uh, I, I'm, Oh my God, I'm forgetting how many communities are on Fogo Island. Is it eight or 12 or something like that? Like, yeah, cause there's, yeah. there's Joe Matt's arm tilting, like town yeah. of Fogo, like it, and, and yeah, it seldom actually, and right. all smaller places. And yeah. it totally, and there's a bunch in the center of the Island and it's like, it totally does make a difference. Like even which community you play, but also just where you play. Like yes. the idea that you could be fired from a gig yeah. in the motel yeah. and then go, you know, ultimately what's a 20 minute drive. Yeah. And, and play a and different a venue and have time. a great yeah. time. Yeah, just speaks to yeah. the type of venue. Yeah, like and and it's bizarre because it could you know I mean we're talking about a very small population. This is not like New York State where you're playing for a completely different group of people and there's yeah. millions of people to choose from. Yeah, we're talking about like literally within a couple of thousand people. That's right. You can yeah. have an entirely different experience the next night. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of nuts, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, the the folk festivals were becoming a big thing. Uh, throughout the through the the seventies and and into the eighties, and that was that was a market for the band then uh, getting out to the to the bigger folk festivals, Mariposa, and, right? You know the Edmonton, Winnipeg folk festivals, Vancouver, right? Um, and a band like Figgy Duff was was ideal for 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 that sort of thing, right? Right. Um, uh, unfortunately, you know, like I said, the band was a bit before its time, and 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 never really did experience any kind of real success. Mm-hmm. Um, although the uh, the accolades were were many, you know, the but you you can't live uh, can't live on accolades. You can't you can't live with a, uh, on a pat on the back, you know. Right. Uh, uh, and and many groups that have come along since have uh, have pointed to Great Big C, for example, mm-hmm. uh, acknowledge. Right up front, that figured off, wonderful grand band, huge influence, and paved the way. To, you know that those bands wouldn't have experienced the success they did had it not been for the, you know, these groups that came before that kind of started the ball rolling. Mm. How so? How does that feel? Because I think Figgy Duff has always been an interesting example to me for this reason, in that. I feel like there are 20 roles now who've heard of Figgy Duff and they go, oh yeah, Figgy Duff is like one of the seminal Newfoundland bands. And they have no idea about any of the struggle that that band endured literally for the entire band's lifetime. It wasn't even, like I think people can so easily tie it up in a bow when it's like, oh, this band struggled for years and then they made it big. Yeah. End of story. It's, yeah. It looks like a biopic that we all watch on TV, yeah. right? Yeah. But And then that, there's the band. That's not like, the case with Figgy Duff. Right. The yeah. band always struggled, and then it sort of ceased to exist, but then yeah. it entered into this canon, yeah. which now has influence. Yeah. So do you, like, that must be weird for you, and people are like, oh, yeah, Figgy Duff, legendary. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I definitely starved yeah. for a lot of years trying to be in that <laughs> band. Like, it must yeah. be a weird yeah. feeling, isn't it? Like It, it is, yeah. And, and, and perhaps even more weird for someone like Pamela, who um, who stayed with that? I mean, I I moved on. Hmm. You know, uh, um, even within the, the lifetime of Figgy Duff, I was in and out of the band and back in again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was an original member, so from seventy five to seventy seven, uh, I left in October seventy seven. Hmm. Uh, we were in Toronto, struggling down and out, and my dad was home, very sick and dying, and I had a decision to make, and I made it. Hmm. Um, so I left the band and went home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then early into 1978, Ron Hines and Sandy Morris invited me to join them to play on a concert of Ron Hines songs at the LSPU Hall, mm-hmm. which I did. And then uh, the the wonderful grand band was formed out of that. Mm. Actually, the, the grand band was, uh, uh, its beginnings were the uh, CBC television uh, we did a, a six-episode show called The Root Cellar. Yes, yeah. Which was uh, Mary Walsh and Greg Malone as right. Mr. and Mrs. Budgel. Right. And they own, they owned a club called The Root Cellar, and uh, this band was the house band in the club. Right. And there'd be a special guest each week. Right, right. We did six of those shows. And again, to use that well-worn expression, that show was ahead of its time. It was right. cancelled. Right. Um, that was in 1978. Lo and behold, by 1980, 81, the WGB show was was doing what the root seller had done and gone way beyond it as well. Right. And then the Codco shows. But uh, in 78, uh, CBC wasn't ready for it. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, yeah. But the, uh, anyway, to get back to what I was saying about, uh, like, I, I, I had something to move on to. You know, right. I, I went on 
you know, to to be proud of that band, and then went on to play with Jim Payne, and 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 then you know there was like a lot of other bands after that. You know, it was four years with the Irish Descendants. Whereas someone like Pamela Morgan, she she was such a you know. I suppose you could say she was figured off, you know, right. you know, she, she was the sort songs of the were central. hers. Like she talked to, yeah. when she was in, she was talking about like buying back the royalties from the songs yeah. and stuff and how like expensive that was and put her into debt. Like yeah. she was clearly oh, yeah. like, there yeah. was a lot of emotion and psychology yeah. invested yeah. for her. Yeah. And, and, and even in her solo career, you know, she, uh, uh, she wrote a lot of fabulous songs. Um, but they were, you know, I, I guess not the type of song that was going to get airplay. And uh, well, you know yourself, you know, the, a singer-songwriter. It's it's a difficult, difficult road, you know. To absolutely. You know, I well, can, you're, I can't imagine having to do that. So yeah, I'm. I'm. I will talk to you a little about this because I think there is a really interesting divide between the, the I guess, the session player and. The yeah. songwriter, and yeah. and that's what you're speaking to, is yes, that exactly yes? Because I can I can come in and be an accompanist or a side man for, you know, for for an, a singer songwriter, right? And I and I did, and, and but it's and not your entire cases, emotional. But it's, it's not my thing. Yeah, yeah like yeah. if you got a bad review as a member of a band, is different than like if it's the if it's the songwriter. Yeah, it can feel like. I'm getting the bad, you know what yeah. I mean? Like they're attacking me. Yes. Whereas if it's an ensemble, you're like, well, obviously it sucks. It's not going to feel good to get a bad, re no, yeah. no reviews, yeah. you know, but like, but it is different. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, uh, I have huge admiration for, um, uh, for people who, uh, who write their own music and, and try to get out there and make, you know, make it, make a living doing that. Right. Yeah. Because it's, uh, my goodness, you know, like, you don't know if it's, you know, no. if the songs are going to be popular, if, if it's going to take off or not, right? Yeah, yeah. No, and, it and it can take off for, for an album, and then the next album is like, gone. Yeah, well, that's yeah. it. And, I, I, you know, I've talked about these music conferences with Sandy a little bit, you know, and Sandy has no real love for the, the industry conferences. I don't know many musicians who would say that they love them. You mm -hmm. know, it's that it's a it's a matter of course. It's a business. It's, you know, you're trying, you know, if you get yeah. work, it's a means to an end, obviously, yeah. is, is the goal. Are we talking about like ECMA? And that yeah, or like, yeah, or the contacts or like yeah. any of those sort of. Uh, I gave up on that stuff years ago. I, I, yeah, I did. They're real, they're, you know, and I mean, some of them are very, uh, like something like a contact is, is even more like, like there's a, there's a, there's a, what do you call it? Like, um, um, there's a, there's a room, like an expo kind of feel to it where you have a booth yeah. and stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. Which feels very like, very industry as if you're like an entrepreneur that you've got, like, I sell my own cheeses. Here, do you want to come buy my cheeses for yeah. your restaurant yeah. or whatever? Yeah. Like it feels like that, but yeah. it's your own songs. Yes. So it is different. So if no one wants to buy your cheeses, you're like, yeah. well, I can't just go sell uh, ginger beers now. Yeah. Like I can't yeah. change my business because it's me. It. Yes. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so there's a real, I think like in 2019 more than ever, there's a conversation over uh, musician health, like mental health for this reason, because uh, now with no real industry to protect like to act as an intermediary between, yeah. say, the artist and the rest of the industry, like there yeah. would have been years ago, yeah. where you would be an artist on a label and the label would be yeah. facing all this rejection for you and just coming back to you and trying to maybe soften the blow or just yeah. even yeah. not give you the information. Yeah. Now you're like, how do I cope with? Yeah, you're totally on your own. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, man. I, I see that. It's a challenge. For, for me, you know, I, I, I've just about always been a sideman. Right. Um, in any groups that I've played with, uh, taking the lead when the fiddle tunes have to be played. Right. You know, you, you're, you're a little bit of the front man then. Yeah. Um, but, but you have uh, Kelly Russell on the planks. Like that would but be... The, yes, there, there's been a couple of exceptions to that. The planks is, is a good example and, and, and the band before that, the plank or down band, mm -hmm. uh, where... Uh, the instrumental was the thing. Right. Uh, so that the fiddler... Is 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 actually the front man of the band, right? Uh, that's that's a tough sell, though. Mm. That's a tough sell. Uh, an instrumental band, right? Uh, few have made it, you know. The the chieftains did it in Ireland, you know. It was right. a, it, but e even then, they had to bring along a guy who'd sing a few songs every now and then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just you gotta have it, right? Uh, <laughs> but 
Now we we sort of almost you know uh, got somewhere uh, with it, uh, and and it was with the ECM, whole ECMA thing. We uh, got a nomination, and we got a. But uh, I witnessed uh, Minnie White, who was well up in years, the mm-hmm. accordion player Minnie mm-hmm. White. She she was brought up to the East Coast Music Awards thing, and uh, I guess it was Halifax or. Uh, because she'd been nominated for the Roots Traditional Award, mm-hmm. and she was flown up and brought up and and sat in the audience as uh, the award was announced and given to somebody else. And I'm like, why would you do that to Minnie White? Right, right. you know, right. like you you're gonna bring her up? I don't know. I just I I, I lost. That was the time. Yeah, that was that, the... that was a turning point for me. I just, yeah. Oh man, that and the fact that uh, I've always been of the opinion that the ECMA thing is stacked in favor of uh, of the Maritimes, of Nova Scotia in particular, because mm. of the, the way the system is structured. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's a vote of the membership, and if the, the majority of the membership are Nova Scotians, well, the Nova Scotian bands are going to win, and the Newfoundlanders are... Right. It's know, so tricky. Like, I mean, it's all, you know, just like our democracy, right? Mm-hmm. This, like, inevitably, yeah. it's the same conversations of, like... We, we've got, uh, we, we've got, a min- we're a minority. Right. We're a minority. And it'll that. always be, because it's yeah. a population thing. That's right. And it's, like, I think that sometimes people think it's it's malicious or something. I don't think it's malicious. I think it just works out that way. At the same time, it doesn't seem fair when it works out that way. Yeah. So you're, like, kind of feels like a checkmate. You're, like, well, what do, what do you do yeah. about yeah. it? I mean... Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. In it's, in uh, some sometimes I've I've used the analogy that uh, that Newfoundland musicians and groups are, are are like bowling pins for the for the ECMA. You know, it's like set them up and knock them down. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the, in in my more callous moments, yeah. so. <laughs> I think we've all felt that way. My God, I mean, I I, I noticed uh, years ago because I mean, I I would be like I was on the Music and L board probably eight years ago or something. And and there was always a yearly conversation about that that careful involvement of the provincial organization with the regional one for that same reason, right? Yeah. Because inevitably, like, what would happen is, you know, the awards would come out, there'd be, like, you know, 100 and something awards given to Nova Scotia, and, mu- like, Newfoundland would get, like, 15 or something like that. It would be yeah. some drastically different number. Yeah. And what you would see then is, like, a Telegram article detailing that just by reporting it just reporting the numbers not giving any editorializing at all but the numbers spoke for themselves and then you would see comments from the public going well sure newfoundland musicians must suck then right and of course we know that we know how the system works we're talking about it it's it's a membership based vote if you're talking about nova scotia i don't even know what the population is compared to newfoundland but it it just looks bad it just looks bad so so you're sort of like but does that mean don't play the game at all i mean certainly we'd all like to like i'd rather not play that game because the game feels bad but then if you're not in it at all are you just invisible and again it goes back to what we were discussing earlier about um uh, receiving awards mm-hmm. for uh, for your music performance, you mm-hmm. know, to me, first place, second place, and winning um, it belongs in, in the realm of sports, right? Because you, you know, can track obviously it. I got more goals than you, so yeah. I won. I ran faster. Right? There's yeah. a timer yes. that says I yeah. ran faster. But yeah. musically, like, how, where do you where do you draw those lines? I know. You know, I know. Like, how many how many goals did you get for for that song? You know, I know. <laughs> I know. It just doesn't apply. So, I mean, I'm curious your thoughts on this because I guess uh, every musician that I know, myself included, a bit with this is like, okay, well, it, it's gross. It feels gross. You know, but. It's all a means to an end because if it says nominee or award winner on the poster, will that actually convince someone to come to the show and watch the show? And if it does, mm. they get to see the show because otherwise, tree falls in the forest. If yep. they don't yep. come, yep. then it doesn't matter how good I am. Yep. But I, I've always wondered, I'm like, but is that true or do we all just kind of buy into it? Does anyone actually, I mean, I've never from a golden rule perspective gone to a show because it said yeah. award nominee. I don't care about that stuff. Yeah. So I find it hard but to a lot imagine. Of people do. I guess they do. A, a lot of people do. And from a PR purely promotional standpoint that is a valuable thing to have right and and i wouldn't hesitate to use it i suppose yeah um i've not had the occasion to but right but uh, But you've been nominated for different things in different groups you've been in though um yeah but i i i've never had on my poster 
you know. Right. East Coast Award nominee. Right. Kelly so Russell. you've never had to. That's my point. <laughs> so you found other ways to, you know, to make make it happen other than that. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, having said that, I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever really made it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my career has been long and varied. Mm-hmm. A lot of different bands and musicians have played with goodness me. You know, if you count the TV shows, because I was a sideman for a lot of the early uh, CBC TV shows, not just the Root Cellar, but the Come All Ye, uh, Anna McGoldrick, I think we did three seasons of that. And I was on uh, Newfoundland Country, it was another one. And so all those guest musicians that came in, you know, I mean, I played with A. Frank Willis. Right. You know, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> just once. Yeah. But I played with him. Still. <laughs> you know, and more, John more White, time than most. John White played with him a bunch of times. Yeah. Right? You know, so, Incredible. Like, uh, you know, my, my involvement in music spans, you know, it's, it's, it's a wide array of, uh, of people that I've, that I've worked with, but but still, uh, Ian, I've always, um, yeah, I, I've never uh, made enough a, as a musician mm-hmm. to, to get by. Mm-hmm. Um, thank goodness I'm married to somebody who has a full time job. Mm. Um, and a sideline for me has been uh, has been um, I, I've always from from the age of eighteen, I, I bought a house down in Berlin for two thousand dollars and <laughs> gradually worked on fixing it up and some it's been a hobby of mine right and i've i've owned a bunch of different houses in a bunch of places over the years right around newfoundland in st john's and out I owned three different houses in trinity right two different houses on bell island mm. i've always enjoyed buying a house fixing it up making it worth more right eventually selling that you know making a little bit of money off that to, to go into the to the next bigger and better house. Right. Uh, and I've had to do that um, in order to make enough money. Sure. Because, uh, you know, I mean, the planks, I mean, we did a few gigs around town. We did mm-hmm. a couple of festivals on the mainland. Mm-hmm. And we did an album that everybody seemed to like. Right. But uh, we've never made any money at it. Well, this is it. Like how a hundred bucks at the ship, you know? I mean. Right. So, how does one do that? I mean, the conversation that I keep having. I mean, this is no different than most of uh, the conversations. Just, just tweaked in the way of like, like, like Sandy does a thousand things. Yeah. Like, yes, everyone goes. Well, it's 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 all music, and it is. But yeah. it, it's like I'm doing like producing and I'm doing like, you know, I'm, I'm touring, I'm doing yeah. like com- some composing for films. It's all music. Yeah. Yes. In some way, yeah. but it is diversification yeah. because how could you not? And I would imagine as a session player, like we were talking about the, the prime struggle of the singer songwriter being like, well, it's, it's kind of like all of you uh, accepted or rejected. But I think the, the struggle with the session players, like you're going to be at the mercy of all the individual bands. Like if none of your bands yeah. are gigging, you can't go out and make yes. work. Yeah. Right? So that's got to be the and, challenge. And, and for me, you know, m- my musical focus, you know, as varied as the career has been with different outfits and bands and that, my musical focus has always been very narrow, which mm. is I'm a fiddle player. Mm. So so my forte is the tunes mm-hmm. um, and how I play them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've tended to... Uh, forego the finesse to to get more at the the grit and the mm. to, to find the rock the rock groove mm-hmm. in 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 the fiddle music you mm-hmm. know that's uh, that passion my thing yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but but musically stylistically my focus has been very narrow uh, so consequently you know I I'm not going to be hired by a jazz ensemble. Or a country band, or uh, you know, as as they're a violinist or fiddle player, mm-hmm. because my my musical capabilities are fairly narrow, and and, and I'm there's nobody more aware of that than I am, mm. um, and up to, to the point where I'll often turn like someone will say, you know, I'm I'm doing an album, I got this country song, I'd love to have you play fiddle on it. I'll say, you know, man, I'm, I'm really not a country style fiddle player, you know, right. like I, I don't, you know. <laughs> I, I think you should maybe look at getting someone else. Yeah, you know, for the sake of your of your recording, because it's not what I do. Right. Um, uh, so, in a sense, I limited myself. I, I, I think if I had my time back, and I've been thinking about this lately, um, if I were to go back in time, I would have diversified more on my instrument. Hmm. I would have learned to play um, 
so that I could get up and jam with a blues band mm. on the fiddle. Mm. Um, and I would have um, uh, developed an ability to play country style a little bit more. And, right. Uh, but my, my focus was just so, I was just so determined, the new, not just fiddle music, but the Newfoundland fiddle music. And this, this became my thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know how it landed in my lap, uh, but it did. I just, I was there at the right time. And I learned from, from the old guys, from Emil and from Rufus and other fiddle players. Right. And I just came along at a time to be able to capture that music before it was gone. Right. And and reinterpreted it and and you know give it a push into the into the future. Right. Right. And and, and that's what I've considered really primarily to be my my role in the music biz was was that you know right. writing it all down, teaching it to people. Getting, you know, that's that's been my thing. Right, but uh, as a result of that intense focus, uh, I didn't diversify stylistically, mm-hmm. uh, and and I've probably uh, screwed myself out of uh, <laughs> out of other opportunities. You know where, uh, you know. So yeah, but I mean, <clears throat> that's you know, that's that's to me speaks to like an artistic pursuit that you had you well, just yes, you know absolutely. that was that was the vision that you and, and that's the passion and that's the you know yeah. and to me that's really what it's about yep. you know i i forgive myself uh, you <laughs> know for for, for for being so focused right um because i know without that focus i would not have done what i did right which i think is a fairly significant contribution to uh, to not just the art scene but to newfoundland music All right, and that's the end of part one of my conversation with Kelly Russell. Isn't he an interesting dude? Tune in next week when you'll hear part two. We'll pick up then. Don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast on the podcast app of your choice. Tell a friend, all that good stuff. See you next week.